0: Section 11 of The Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annie Rue. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. John C. Calhoun. Part 2. Thus endowed by nature, and equipped with as good an education as could then be obtained in the United States, Mr. Calhoun entered public life at the moment when the American people were smarting under the insults and humiliations heaped upon them by France and England, and were groping about for some issue from their troubles and some vindication of the national honor and independence. Calhoun and his friends, men like Henry Clay and like Lownez and Chavez, from his own state, came in on the wave of popular revolt against the conditions to which the country had been brought wavering diplomacy gunboats on wheels and even embargoes which chiefly punished our own commerce had ceased to appeal to them they had the great advantage of knowing what they meant to do they were determined to resist if necessary they intended to fight They dragged their party, their reluctant president, and their divided country helplessly after them. The result was the War of 1812. With war came not only the appeal to the national spirit, which was only just waking into life, but the measures without which war cannot be carried on. The party which had opposed military and naval forces, public debts, tariffs, banks, and a strong central government, now found themselves raising armies, equipping and building a navy, borrowing money imposing high import duties sustaining the bank and developing in all directions the powers of the government of the united states the doctrines of strict construction which had been the idols of the ruling party looked far less attractive when invoked by new england against their own policies and the constitution which jefferson set aside as he thought to acquire louisiana became most elastic in the hands of those who had sought to draw its band so tightly that the infant nation could hardly move its limbs mr calhoun with his mind set on the accomplishments of the great purpose of freeing the united states from foreign aggression and thus lifting it to its rightful place among the nations of the earth did not shrink from the conclusions to which his purpose led his mind was too clear and too rigidly logical to palter with or seek to veil the inevitable results of the policy he supported as he wished the end he was too virile too honest in his mental processes not to wish the means to that end the war left a legacy of debts and bankruptcy and in dealing with these problems it was calhoun who reported the bill for a new bank of the united states who sustained the tariff of eighteen sixteen defended the policy of protection to manufacturers and advocated a comprehensive scheme of internal improvements then it was that he declared in the house on the thirty first of january eighteen sixteen when he reported the bill setting aside certain funds for internal improvements, after urging an increase of the army that as to the species of preparation the navy most certainly at any point of view occupies the first place it is the most safe most effectual and cheapest mode of defence in eighteen fourteen annals of congress page one thousand nine hundred sixty five he said in regard to manufactures that he hoped at all times and under every policy they would be protected with due care two years later he returned to the subject as part of his theory of the national defence and said in regard to the question of how far manufacturers ought to be fostered it is the duty of this country as a means of defence to encourage its domestic industry more especially that part of it which provides the necessary materials for clothing and defence the question relating to manufacturers must not depend on the abstract principle that industry left to pursue its own course will find in its own interests all the encouragement that is necessary laying the claims of manufacturers entirely out of view on general principles without regard to their interests a certain encouragement should be extended at least to our woolen and cotton manufacturers at the close of the same year, December 16, 1816, Annals of Congress, 1816-17, through 17, pages 853, 854, he said, Let it not be forgotten, let it be forever kept in mind, that the extent of our republic exposes to us the greatest of all calamities, next to the loss of liberty, and even to that in its consequence, disunion we are great and rapidly i was about to say fearfully growing this is our pride and danger our weakness and our strength little does he deserve to be entrusted with the liberties of his people who does not raise his mind to these truths we are under the most imperious obligation to counteract every tendency to disunion. If we permit a low, sordid, selfish, and sectional spirit to take possession of this house, this happy scene will vanish. We will divide, and in its consequence will follow misery and despotism. A little more than a month later, broadening his theme, to which he constantly recurred, and speaking of internal improvements, February fourth, 1817, he said it is mainly urged that congress can only apply the money and execution of the enumerated powers i am no advocate for refined arguments on the constitution the instrument was not intended as a thesis for the logician to exercise his ingenuity on it ought to be construed with good plain sense and what can be more expressed than the constitution on this point if the framers had intended to limit the use of money to the powers afterward enumerated and defined nothing could have been more easy than to have expressed it plainly but suppose the constitution to be silent why should we be confined in the application of monies to the enumerated powers there is nothing in the reason of the thing that i can perceive why it should be so restricted and the habitual and uniform practice of the government coincides with my opinion in reply to this uniform course of legislation i expect it will be said that our constitution is founded on positive and written principles and not on precedents. i do not deny the position but i have introduced these instances to prove the uniform sense of congress and the country for they have not been objected to as our powers and surely they furnish better evidence of the true interpretation of the constitution than the most refined and subtle arguments let us not be argued that the construction for which i contend gives a dangerous extent to the powers of congress in this point of view i conceive it to be more safe than the opposite by giving a reasonable extent to the money power it exempts us from the necessity of giving strained and forced construction to the other enumerated powers from the house of representatives he passed to the cabinet of president monroe where he served from eighteen seventeen to eighteen twenty five as secretary of war showing high capacity as an administrator he took the department avowedly as a reformer for the lesson of our unreadiness and our lack of military preparation had been burned into his mind by the bitter experiences of the war of eighteen twelve the army was reduced by congress during its tenure of office but organization discipline and efficiency were all advanced by his well-directed efforts in eighteen twenty five mister calhoun was elected vice-president and was re-elected four years later in eighteen thirty two he resigned the vice-presidency to become senator from south carolina his resignation followed by his acceptance of the senatorship marks his public separation from the policies of his earlier years and the formal devotion of his life to the cause of states rights and slavery the real division had begun some years before he left the vice-presidency his change of attitude culminated in his support of nullification and his bitter quarrel with jackson which was all the more violent because they were of the same race and were both possessed of equal strength of will and equal intensity of conviction i have thus referred to the change in mr calhoun's position solely because of its historical significance marking as it does the beginning of a new epoch in the great conflict between the contending principles of nationalism and separatism in his own day he was accused of inconsistency and the charge was urged and repelled with the heat usual to such disputes nothing as a rule is more futile or more utterly unimportant than the efforts to prove inconsistency it is a favorite resort in debate and may therefore be supposed that it is considered effective in impressing the popular mind historically it is a charge which has little weight unless conditions lend it an importance which is never inherent in the mere fact itself if no man ever changed his opinions if no one was open to the teachings of experience human progress would be arrested and the world would stagnate in an intellectual lethargy inconsistency emerson has declared to be the bugbear of weak minds and this is entirely true of those who dreading the accusation shrink from adopting an opinion or a faith which they believe to be true but to which they have formerly been opposed mr calhoun defined inconsistency long before the day when the charge was brought against him with that fine precision of thought which was so characteristic of his utterances he said in the house in eighteen fourteen men cannot go straight forward but must regard the obstacles which impede their course inconsistency consists in a change of conduct when there is no change of circumstances which justify it tried by this accurate standard mr calhoun is as little to be criticised for his change of position as mr webster for his altered attitude in regard to the system of protection with the new conditions and new circumstances both men changed on important questions of policy and both were justified from their respective points of view in doing so that mr calhoun went further than mr webster changing not only as to a policy but in his views of the constitution and the structure of government does not in the least affect the truth of the general proposition the very measures which he had once fostered and defended had brought into being a situation which he felt with unerring prescience portended the destruction of the fundamental principles in which he believed and of a social and economic system which he thought vital to the safety and prosperity of the people whom he represented the national force which he had helped to strengthen the central government which he had so powerfully aided to build up seemed to him to have become like the creation of a frankenstein a monster which threatened to destroy its creators and all he personally held most dear it was inevitable that he should strive with all his strength to stay the progress of what he thought would bring ruin to the system in which he believed once committed to this opinion he was incapable of finding a half-way house where he could rest in peace or a compromise which he could accept with confidence his reason carried him to the inevitable end which his inexorable logic demanded and to that reason and that logic he was loyal with all the loyalty of strong conviction and an honest mind there is no need to discuss either the soundness or the validity of the opinions he held that is a question which has long since passed before the tribunal of history all that concerns us to-day is to recall the manner in which calhoun carried on his long struggle of twenty-five years in behalf of the principles to which he was utterly devoted he brought to the conflict remarkable mental and moral qualities, deep conviction, an iron will, a powerful mind, an unsparing logic, and reasoning powers of the highest order. Burr said that anyone who went on to paper with Alexander Hamilton was lost. Anyone who admitted Mr. Calhoun's premises was lost in like fashion. Once caught in the grasp of that penetrating and relentless intellect, there was no escape you must go with it to the end he fought his fight with unbending courage asking no quarter and giving none he flinched from no conclusion he faced every result without change or concession he had no fear of the opponents who met him in debate he felt assured in his own heart that he could hold his own against all comers but he must have known for he was not a man who ever suffered from self-deception that the enemies whom he could not overcome were beyond the range of argument and debate The unconquerable foes were the powerful and silent forces of the time, which the great uprising of 1848, in behalf of political liberty, was but a manifestation. The world of civilized man was demanding a larger freedom, and slavery, economically sound, was a survival and an anachronism even more formidable was the movement for national unity which was worldwide it was stirring in germany and was an active life in italy the principle of separatism particularism was at war with the spirit of the time the stars in their courses fought against Cicera and calhoun with his keen perceptions must have known in his heart that he was defending his cause against hopeless odds but he never blenched and his gallant spirit never failed or yielded when the crisis of eighteen 1950 came clay brought forward his last and most famous compromise which was supported by webster The two Whig leaders were filled with dread as they contemplated the perils which at that moment menaced the Union, and were ready to go far in the road of concession. Calhoun then, nearing his death, had no faith in the compromise. He saw with that clearness of vision which nothing could dim, that in the existing state of public thought, the presence of the aspirations for freedom and national unity which then filled the minds of men throughout the Western civilization, no compromise such as Clay proposed could possibly endure he had his own plan which he left as a legacy to his country but his proposition was no compromise it settled the question it divided the country under the forms of law made the national government only a government in name the solution was complete but it was impossible clay's compromise as everyone knows was adopted there was a brief lull and the mighty forces of the age swept it aside and pressed forward in their inevitable conflict i think calhoun understood all this which is so plain now and was so hidden then better than either of his great opponents if they realized the situation as he did they at all events did not admit it clay with the sanguine courage which always characterized him with the invincible hopefulness which never deserted him gave his last years to his supreme effort to turn aside the menace of the time by a measure of mutual concession webster sustained clay but with far less buoyancy of spirit or of hope thus just sixty years ago they all stood together for the last time these three men who gave their names to an epoch in our history and who typified in themselves the tendencies of the time before two years more had passed they had all three gone and the curtain had fallen on the act of the great drama in which they had played the leading parts it is a moment in our history which has always seemed to me to possess an irresistible attraction not merely are the printed records the speeches that were then made and the memoirs then written of absorbing interest but the men themselves not only filled but looked their parts which is far from common in the case of actors and the never-ending drama of humanity they all looked in their portraits as imagination tells us they should look and i share the faith of carlyle in the evidence of portraiture over the rigorous angular and far from handsome features of henry clay is spread that air of serenity and cheerfulness which was among one of the many qualities which so drew him to the fervent affection of thousands of men we can realize as we study his portrait the fascination which attracted people to him the charm which enabled him as one of his admirers said to cast off his friends as huntsmen from his pack for he knew when he pleased he could whistle them back a gallant soul an inspiring leader a dashing winning impulsive nature brilliant talents i think one can see them all there in the face of henry clay turn to the latest portraits of webster and calhoun and you pass into another world they are two of the most remarkable heads two of the most striking most compelling faces in the long annals of portraiture they are widely different so far as the outer semblance is concerned the great leonine head of webster charged with physical and mental strength the massive jaw the eyes as carlyle said glowing like dull anthracite furnaces beneath the heavy brows seemed at first glance to have no even remote resemblance to the haggard face of calhoun with dark piercing yet sombre eyes looking out from cavernous orbits the high intellectual forehead the stern strong mouth and jaw all printed deep with the lines of suffering endured in silence but if we look again and consider more deeply we can see that there is a likeness between them the last photographs of webster the last portraits of calhoun show us a certain strong resemblance which is not i think the mere creation of fancy bred by our knowledge of the time Both are exceptionally powerful faces, in both great intellect, great force, and the pride of thought are apparent, and both are deeply tragic in their expression. It is not the tragedy of disappointment because they had failed to attain the office which was the goal of their ambition. That was the shallow explanation of excited contemporary judgment. Personal disappointment does not and cannot leave the expression we find on those two faces. There is a listening fear in their regard, not a personal fear. They were too great for that, but a dread, because they heard, as other men could not hear, the hand of fate knocking at the door. The shadow of the coming woe fell darkly across their last years, and the tragedy which weighed them down was the tragedy of their country. It was thus that Webster looked, when on the 7th of March, speech, in the great passage on peaceable secession, he cried out in agony of spirit what states are to secede what is to remain american what am i to be an american no longer am i to be a sectional man a local man a separatist with no country in common with the gentlemen who sit around me here or who fill the other house of congress heaven forbid where is the flag of the republic to remain where is the eagle still to tower or is he to cower and shrink fall to the ground however webster and calhoun disagreed they both knew that the union could not be lightly broken they knew the disruption of the states would be a convulsion they foresaw that it would bring war the war which webster predicted and they both turned with dread from the vision which haunted them we catch the same note in the words of calhoun on march five eighteen fifty when he declared if i am judged by my acts, i trust i shall be judged as firm a friend of the union as any man within it Despite all he had said and done, he still clung to the union he had served so long. And when, as the month closed, he lay on his deathbed and thought of the future, dark with menace, was still with him, and he was heard to murmur, "The South, the poor South, God knows what will become of her." so they passed away the three great senators and the vast silent forces which moved mankind and settled the fate of nations marched forward to their predestined end we do well to place here a statue of calhoun i would that he would stand with none but his peers about him and not be elbowed and crowded by the temporarily notorious and the illustrious obscure His statue is here of right he was really a great man one of the conspicuous figures of our history in that history he stands out clear distinct commanding there is no trace of the demagogue about him he was a bold as well as a deep thinker and he had the full courage of his convictions the doctrines of socialism were as alien to him as the worship of commercialism he raised his mind to truths he believed that statesmanship must move on a high plane and he could not conceive that mere money-making and money-spending were the highest objects of ambition in the of men or nations he was the greatest man south carolina has given to the nation that in itself is no slight praise for from the days of the lawrences the pickneys the rutledges from the time of moultrie and sumter and marion to the present day south carolina has always been conspicuous in peace and war for the force the ability and the character of the men who have served her and given to her name high distinction in our history but calhoun was much more even than this he was one of the most remarkable men one of the keenest minds that american public life can show it matters not that before the last tribunal the verdict went against him that the extreme doctrines to which his imperious logic carried him have been banned and barred. The man remains greatly placed in our history. The unyielding courage, the splendid intellect, the long devotion to the public service, the pure, unspotted private life, are all there, are all here with us now, untouched and unimpaired for ages to admire. End of section 11